Book six, chapters twenty three and twenty four of On War, volumes two and three, by Carl von Clausewitz, translated by J. J. Graham. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Timothy Ferguson. Chapter twenty three, Key of the Country. There is no theoretical idea in the art of war which has played such a part in criticism as that we are now entering upon. It is the great war steed in all accounts of battles and campaigns, the most frequent point of view in all arguments, and one of those fragments of scientific form which critics make a show of learning. And yet the conception embodied in it has never yet been established, nor has it ever been clearly explained. We shall try to ascertain its real meaning, and then see how far it can be made available for practical use. We treat of it here because the defence of mountains, river defences, as well as the conceptions of strong and entrenched camps with which it closely connects itself, required to have precedence. The indefinite, confused conception which is concealed behind this ancient military metaphor has sometimes signified the most exposed part of a country, at other times the strongest. If there is any spot without the possession of which no one dare venture to penetrate into an enemy's country, that may, with propriety, be called the key of that country. But this simple, though certainly at the same time also barren, notion has not satisfied theorists, and they have amplified it, and under the term key of a country, imagined points which decide upon the possession of the whole country. When the Russians wanted to advance into the Crimean Peninsula, they were obliged to make themselves masters of the Isthmus of Perikop and its lines, not so much to gain an entrance generally, for Lasky turned it twice, 1737 and 1738, but to be able to establish themselves with tolerable security in the Crimea. That is very simple, but we gain very little in this through the conception of a key point. But if it might be said, whoever has the possession of the district of Langres commands all France as far as Paris, that is to say, it only rests with himself to take possession, that is plainly a very different thing something of a much higher importance. According to the first kind of conception, the possession of the country cannot be thought of without the possession of the point which we have called key. That is a thing which is intelligible to the most ordinary capacity. But according to the second kind of conception, the possession of the point which we have called key cannot be imagined without the possession of the country following as a necessary consequence. That is plainly something marvellous. Common sense is no longer sufficient to grasp this. The magic of the occult sciences must be called into requisition. This Kabbalah came into existence in works published fifty years ago, and reached its zenith at the end of the last century. And notwithstanding the irresistible force, certainty and distinctness, with which Bonaparte's method of conducting war carried conviction generally, this Kabbalah has nevertheless still managed, we say, to spin out the thread of its tenacious existence, through the medium of books. Open bracket. Setting aside for a moment our conception of the key point, close bracket, it is self-evident that in every country there are points of commanding importance, where several roads meet, where our means of subsistence may be conveniently collected, which have the advantage of being centrally situated with reference to other important points, the possession of which, in short, meets many requirements and affords many advantages, now, if generals wishing to express the importance of such a point by one word have called it the key of the land, it would be pedantic affectation to take offence at their using that term. On the contrary, we should rather say that the term is very expressive and pleasing. 
but if we try to convert this mere flower of speech into the germ of a system branching out like a tree into many ramifications common sense rises in opposition and demands that the expression should be restricted to its true value in order to develop a system out of the expression it was necessary to resort to something more distinct and absolute than the practical but certainly very indefinite meaning attaching to the term in the narrations of generals when speaking of their military enterprises and from amongst all the various relations that of high ground was chosen when a road transverses a mountain ridge we thank heaven when we get to the top and have only to descend this feeling so natural to a single traveller is still more so in the case of an army all difficulties seem to be overcome and so they are indeed in most instances we find that the descent is easy and we are conscious of a kind of feeling of superiority over anyone who would stop us we have an extensive view over the country and command it with a look beforehand thus the highest point on a road over a mountain is always considered to possess a decisive importance and does in fact in a majority of cases but by no means in all such points are very often described in the dispatches of generals by the name of key points but certainly again in a somewhat different and generally in a more restricted sense this idea has been the starting point of a false theory open bracket of which perhaps lloyd may be regarded as the founder close bracket and on this account elevated points from which several roads descend into the adjacent country came to be regarded as key points of the country as points which command the country it was natural that this view should amalgamate itself with one very nearly connected with it that of a systematic defence of mountains and that the matter should thus be driven still further into the regions of the illusory added to which many tactical elements connected with the defence of mountains came into play and thus the idea of the highest point in the road was soon abandoned and the highest point generally of the whole mountain system that is the point of the watershed was substituted for it as the key of the country now just at that time that is the latter half of the preceding century more definite ideas on the forms given to the surface of the earth through aqueous action became current thus natural science lent a hand to the theory of war by this geological system and then every barrier of practical truth was broken through and reasoning floated in the illusory system of a geological analogy in consequence of this about the end of the eighteenth century we heard or rather we read of nothing but the sources of the rhine and danube it is true this nuisance prevailed mostly in books for only a small portion of book wisdom ever reaches the real world and the more foolish a theory the less it will attain to practice but this of which we are now speaking has not been unproductive of injury to germany by its practical effects therefore we are not fighting with a windmill in proof of which we shall quote two examples first the important but very scientific campaigns of the prussian army seventeen ninety three and seventeen ninety four in the vosges the theoretical key to which will be found in the works of Gravert and massenbach secondly the campaign of eighteen fourteen when on the principle of the same theory an army of two hundred thousand men was led by the nose through switzerland on to the plateau of langres as it is called but a high point in a country from which all its waters flow is generally nothing more than a high point and all that in exaggeration and false application of ideas true in themselves was written at the end of the eighteenth and commencement of the nineteenth centuries about its influence on military events is completely imaginary if the rhine and danube and all the six rivers of germany had their common source on top of one mountain that mountain would not on that account have any claim to any greater military value 
than being suited for the position of a trigonometrical point. For a signal tower, it would be less useful, still less so for a vedette, and for a whole army worth just nothing at all. To seek for a key position, therefore, in the so-called key country, that is, where the different branches of the mountains diverge from a common point, and at the highest source of its waters, is merely an idea in books, which is overthrown by nature itself, because nature does not make the ridges and valleys so easy to descend as is assumed by the hereto so-called theory of ground, but distributes peaks and gorges in the most irregular manner, and not unfrequently the lowest water level is surrounded by the loftiest masses of mountain. If any one questions military history on the subject, he will soon convince himself that the leading geological points of a country exercise very little regular influence on the use of the country for the purpose of war, and that little is so overbalanced by other local circumstances and other requirements that a line of positions may often run quite close to one of the points we are discussing without having been in any way attracted there by that point. We have only dwelt so long upon this false idea because a whole and very pretentious system has built itself up upon it. We now leave it and turn back to our own views. We say, then, that if the expression key position is to represent an independent conception in strategy, it must only be that of a locality the possession of which is indispensable before daring to enter the enemy's country. But if we choose to designate by that term every convenient point of entrance to a country, or every advantageous central point in the country, then the term loses its real meaning, open bracket, that is, its value, close bracket, and denotes something which may be found anywhere, more or less. It then becomes a mere pleasing figure of speech. But positions such as the term conveys to our mind are very rarely indeed to be found. In general, the best key to the country lies in the enemy's army. And when the idea of country predominates over that of armed force, some very specially advantageous circumstances must prevail. These, according to our opinion, may be recognised by their tending to two principal results. First, that the force occupying the position through the help of the ground obtains extraordinary capability of tactical resistance. Second, that the enemy's lines of communication can be sooner effectively threatened from this position than he can threaten ours. End of chapter 23 chapter twenty four operating against a flank we need hardly observe that we speak of the strategic flank that is the side of the theatre of war and that the attack from one side in battle or the tactical movement against a flank must not be confounded with it and even in cases in which the strategic operation against a flank in its last stage ends in the tactical operation they can quite easily be kept separate because the one never follows necessarily out of the other these flanking movements and the flanking positions connected with them belong also to the mere useless pageantry of theory which is seldom met with in actual war not that the means itself is either ineffectual or illusory but because both sides generally seek to guard themselves against its effects and cases in which this is impossible are rare now in these uncommon cases this means has often proved highly efficacious and for this reason as well as on account of the constant watching against it which is required in war, it is important that it should be clearly explained in theory. Although the strategic operation against a flank can naturally be imagined, not only on the part of the defensive, but also on that of the offensive, still it has much more affinity with the first, and therefore finds its place under the head of defensive means. Before we enter into the subject, we must establish the simple principle, which must never be lost sight of afterwards in the consideration of the subject, that troops which are to act against the rear or flank of the enemy 
cannot be employed against his front, and that therefore, whether it be in tactics or strategy, it is a completely false kind of notion to consider that coming on the rear of the enemy is at once an advantage in itself. In itself it is as yet nothing, but it will become something in connection with other things, and that something either advantageous or the reverse, according to the nature of these things, the examination of which now claims our attention. First, in the action against the strategic flank, we must make a distinction between two objects of that measure, between the action merely against the communications and that against the line of retreat, with which at the same time an effect upon the communications may also be combined. When Dawn, in 1758, sent a detachment to seize the convoys on their way to the siege of Olmutz, he had plainly no intention of impeding the king's retreat into Silesia. He rather wished to bring about that retreat, and would willingly have opened the line to him. In the campaign of 1812, the object of all the expeditionary corps that were detached from the Russian army in the months of September and October was only to intercept the communications, not to stop the retreat. But the latter was quite plainly the design of the Moldovian army, which under Chishachagov marched against the Beresina, as well as of the attack with General Wittgenstein was commissioned to make on the French corps stationed on the Duina. These examples are merely to make the exposition clearer. The action against the lines of communication is directed against the enemy's convoys, against small detachments following in rear of the army, against couriers and travellers, small depots, etc., in fact, against all means which the enemy requires to keep his army in a vigorous and healthy condition. Its object is, therefore, to weaken the condition of the enemy in this respect, and by this means to cause him to retreat. The action against the enemy's line of retreat is to cut his army off from that line. It cannot affect this object unless the enemy really determines to retreat, but it may certainly cause him to do so by threatening his line of retreat, and therefore it may have the same effect as the action against the line of communication by working as a demonstration. But, as already said, none of these effects are to be expected from the mere turning which has been effected, from the mere geometrical form given to the disposition of the troops. They only result from the conditions suitable to the same. In order to learn more distinctly these conditions, we shall separate completely the two actions against the flank, and consider that which is directed against the communications. Here we must first establish two principal conditions, one or the other of which must always be forthcoming. The first is that the forces used for this action against the flank of the enemy must be so insignificant in numbers that their absence is not observed in front. The second, that the enemy's army has run its career and therefore can neither make use of a fresh victory over our army, nor can he pursue us if we evade a combat by moving out of the way. This last case, which is by no means so uncommon as might be supposed, we shall lay aside for the moment and occupy ourselves with the accessory conditions of the first. The first of these is that the communications have a certain length and cannot be protected by a few good posts. The second point is that the situation of the line is such as exposes it to our action. This weakness of the line may arise in two ways, either by its direction, if it is not perpendicular to the strategic front of the enemy's army, or because his lines of communication pass through our territory. If both these circumstances exist, the line is so much the more exposed. These two relations require a closer examination. One would think that when it is a question of covering a line of communication 40 or 50 miles long, it is of little consequence whether the position occupied by an army standing at one extremity of this line forms an oblique angle or a right angle in reference to it, as the breadth of the position is little more than a mere point in comparison to the line. 
and yet it is not so unimportant as it may seem when an army is posted at a right angle with its communications it is difficult even with a considerable superiority to interrupt the communication by any detachments or partisans set out for the purpose if we think only of the difficulty of covering absolutely a certain space we should not believe this but rather suppose on the contrary that it must be very difficult for an army to protect its rear open bracket that is the country behind it close bracket against all expeditions which an enemy superior in numbers may undertake certainly if we could look at everything in war as it is on a sheet of paper then the party covering the line in his uncertainty as to the point where light troops or partisans may appear would be in a certain measure blind and only the partisans would see but if we think of the uncertainty and insufficiency of intelligence gained in war and know that both parties are incessantly groping in the dark then we easily perceive that a detached corps sent round the enemy's flank to gain his rear is in a position of a man engaged in a fray with numbers in a dark room in the end he must fall and so must it be also with bands who get round an army occupying a perpendicular position and who therefore place themselves near to the enemy but widely separated from their own people not only is there danger of losing numbers in this way there is also a risk of the whole instrument itself being blunted immediately for the very first misfortune which happens to one such party will make all the others timid and instead of bold attacks and insolent dodging the only play will be constant running away through this difficulty therefore an army occupying a perpendicular position covers the nearest points on its line of communications for a distance of two or three marches according to the strength of the army but those nearest points are just those which are in most danger as they are the nearest to the enemy on the other hand in the case of a decidedly oblique position no such part of the line of communication is covered the smallest pressure the most insignificant attempt on the part of the enemy leads at once to a vulnerable point but now what is it which determines the front of a position if it is not just the direction perpendicular to the line of communication the front of the enemy but then again this may be equally as well supposed to be dependent on our front here there is a reciprocal effect for the origin of which we must search readers note a small diagram follows the diagram shows two dashed lines which meet at an oblique angle the oblique angle gives the impression of an arrow pointing upward on the page the line on the reader's left is marked with three points from the left to the right a b and e the line on the reader's right is marked with three points from the left e d and c point e is where the two lines intersect reader's note ends if we suppose the lines of communication of the assailant a b so situated with respect to those of the enemy cd that the two lines form a considerable angle with each other it is evident that if the defensive wishes to take up a position at e where the two lines intersect the assailant from b by the mere geometrical relation could compel him to form front opposite to him and thus lay bare his communications this case would be reversed if the defensive took up the position on this side of the point of junction about d then the assailant must make front towards him if so be that his line of operations which closely depends on geographical conditions cannot be arbitrarily changed and moved for instance to the direction a d from this it would seem to follow that the defender has an advantage in this system of reciprocal action because he only requires to take a position on this side of the intersection of the two lines but very far from attaching any importance to this geometrical element 
we only brought it into consideration to make ourselves the better understood and we are rather of the opinion that local and generally individual relations have much more to do with determining the position of the defender that therefore it is quite impossible to lay down in general which of two belligerents will be obliged soonest to expose his communications if the lines of communication of both sides lie in one and the same direction then whichever of the two parties takes up an oblique position will certainly compel his adversary to do the same but then there is nothing gained geometrically by this and both parties attain the same advantages and disadvantages in the continuation of our considerations we shall therefore confine ourselves to the case of the line of communication of one side only being exposed now as regards the second disadvantageous relation of a line of communication that is to say when it runs through an enemy's country it is clear in itself how much the line is compromised by that circumstance if the inhabitants of the country have taken up arms and consequently the case must be looked at as if a body of the enemy were posted all along the line this body it is true is in itself weak without solidity or intensive force but we must also take into consideration what the close contact and influence of such a hostile force may nevertheless effect through the number of points which offer themselves one after another on long lines of communication that requires no further explanation but even if the enemy's subjects have not taken up arms and even if there is no militia in the country or other military organization indeed if the people are even very unwarlike in spirit still the mere relation of the people as subjects to a hostile government is a disadvantage for the lines of communication of the other side which is always felt the assistance which expeditionary forces and partisans derive merely through a better understanding with the people through a knowledge of the country and its inhabitants through good information through the support of official functionaries is for them of decided value and this support every such body will enjoy without any special effort on its own part added to this within a certain distance there will not be wanting fortresses rivers mountains or other places of refuge which of ordinary right belong to the enemy if they have not been formally taken possession of and occupied by our troops now in such a case as is here supposed especially if attended with other favourable circumstances it is possible to act against the communications of an army although the direction is perpendicular to the position of that army for the detachments employed for the purpose do not then require to fall back always on their own army because being in their own country they are safe enough if they only make their escape we have therefore now ascertained that one a considerable length two an oblique direction three an enemy's province are the principal circumstances under which the lines of communication of an army may be interrupted by a relatively small proportion of armed forces on the side of the enemy in order to make this interruption effectual a fourth condition is still requisite which is a certain duration of time respecting this point we beg attention to what has been said in the fifteenth chapter of the fifth book but these four considerations are only the chief points which relate to the subject a number of local and special circumstances attach themselves to these and often attain to an influence more decisive and important than that of the principal ones themselves selecting only the most essential we mention the state of the roads the nature of the country through which they pass the means of cover which are afforded by rivers mountains and morasses the seasons and weather the importance of particular convoys such as siege trains the number of light troops etc etc on all these circumstances therefore will depend the effect with which a general can act on his opponent's communications and by comparing the result of the whole of these circumstances on the one side with the result of the whole on the other we obtain a just estimate of the relative advantages 
of both systems of communication on which will depend which of the two generals can play the highest game what here seems so prolix in explanation is often decided in the concrete case at first sight but still the tact of a practised judgment is required for that and a person must have thought over every one of the cases now developed in order to see in its true light the absurdity of those critical writers who think they have settled something by the mere words turning and acting on a flank without giving their reasons we now come to the second chief condition under which the strategic action against the enemy's flank may take place if the enemy is hindered from advancing by any other cause but the resistance which our army opposes let that cause be what it may our army has no reason to be apprehensive about weakening itself by sending out detachments to harass the enemy for if the enemy should attempt to chastise us by an attack we have only to yield some ground and decline the combat this is what was done by the chief russian army at moscow in eighteen twelve but it is not at all necessary that everything should be again on the same great scale as in that campaign for such a case to happen again in the first silesian war frederick the great was each time in this situation on the frontiers of bohemia and moravia and in complex affairs relating to generals and their armies many causes of different kinds particularly political ones may be imagined which make further advance an impossibility as in the case now supposed more forces may be spared to act against the enemy's flank the other considerations need not be quite so favourable even the nature of our communications in relation to those of the enemy need not give the advantage in that respect as an enemy who is not in a condition to make any particular use of our further retreat is not likely to use his right to retaliate but will rather be anxious of the direct covering of his own line of retreat such a situation is therefore very well suited to obtain for us by means less brilliant and complete but less dangerous than a victory those results which it would be too great a risk to seek to obtain by a battle as in such a case we feel little anxiety about exposing our own line of communications by taking a position on one or other flank and as the enemy by that means may always be compelled to form front obliquely to his line of communications therefore this one of the communications above named will seldom fail to occur the more the rest of the conditions as well as other circumstances cooperate so much the more certain are we of success from the means now in question but the fewer favourable circumstances exist the more will all depend on superior skill in combination and promptitude and precision in the execution here is the proper field for strategic manoeuvres such as are to be found so frequently in the seven years war in silesia and saxony and in the campaigns of seventeen sixty and seventeen sixty two if in many wars in which only a moderate amount of elementary force is displayed such strategic manoeuvring very often appears this is not because the commander on each occasion found himself at the end of his career but because want of resolution and courage and of an enterprising spirit and dread of responsibility have often supplied the place of real impediments for a case in point we have only to call to mind field marshal dawn as a summary of the results of our considerations we may say that the action against a flank is most effectual one in the defensive two towards the end of a campaign three above all in a retreat into the heart of the country and four in connection with a general arming of the people on the mode of executing this action against the communications we have only a few words to say the enterprises must be conducted by skilful detachment leaders who at the head of small bodies by bold marches and attacks fall upon the enemy's weak garrisons convoys and small detachments on the march here and there encourage the national levies land sturm, and sometimes join with them in particular undertakings 
these parties must be more numerous than strong individually and so organized that it may be possible to unite several of them for any greater undertaking without any obstacle from the vanity or caprice of any of the single leaders we have now to speak of the action against the enemy's line of retreat here we must keep in view above all things the principle with which we commenced that forces destined to operate in rear cannot be used in front that therefore the action against the rear or flanks is not an increase of force in itself it is only to be regarded as a more powerful application or employment of the same increasing the degree of success in prospect but also increasing the degree of risk every opposition offered with the sword which is not of a direct and simple nature has a tendency to raise the result at the cost of its certainty an operation against the enemy's flank whether with one compact force or with separate bodies converging from several quarters belongs to this category but now if cutting off an enemy's retreat is not to be a mere demonstration but is seriously intended the real solution is a decisive battle or at least the conjunction of all the conditions for the same and just in this solution we find again the two elements above mentioned the greater result and the greater danger therefore if a general is to stand justified in adopting this method of action his reasons must be favourable conditions in this method of resistance we must distinguish the two forms already mentioned the first is if a general with his whole force intends to attack the enemy in rear either from a position taken up on the flank for that purpose or by a formal turning movement the second is if he divides his forces and by an enveloping position with one part threatens the enemy's rear with the other part his front the result is intensified in both cases alike that is either there is a real interception of the retreat and consequently the enemy's army taken prisoners or the greater part scattered or there may be a long and hasty retreat of the enemy's force to escape the danger but the intensified risk is different in the two cases if we turn the enemy with our whole force the danger lies in laying open our own rear and hence the question again depends on the relation of the mutual lines of retreat just as in the action against the lines of communication it depended on the relation of those lines now certainly the defender if he is in his own country is less restricted than the assailant both as to his lines of retreat and communication and in so far is therefore in a better position to turn his adversary strategically but this general relation is not of a sufficiently decisive character to be used as the foundation of a practical method therefore nothing but the whole of the relations in each individual case can decide only so much may we add that favourable conditions are naturally more common in wide spheres of action than in small more common also on the side of independent states than on that of weak ones dependent on foreign aid and whose armies must therefore constantly have their attention bent on the point of junction with the auxiliary army lastly they become most favourable for the defender towards the close of the campaign when the impulsive force of the assailant is somewhat spent very much again in the same manner as in the case of the lines of communication such a flank position as the russians took up with such advantage on the road from moscow to kaluga when bonaparte's aggressive force was spent would have brought them into a scrape at the commencement of the campaign at the camp of drissa if they had not been wise enough to change their plan in good time the other method of turning the enemy and cutting off his retreat by dividing our force entails the risk attending a division of our own force whilst the enemy having the advantage of interior lines retains his forces united and therefore has the power of acting with superior numbers against one of our divisions this is a disadvantage which nothing can remove and in exposing ourselves to it we can only be justified by one of three principal reasons one the original division of the force which makes such a method of action necessary unless we incur a great loss of time 
two a great moral and physical superiority which justifies the adoption of a decisive method three the want of impulsive force from the enemy as soon as he has arrived at the culminating point of his career when frederick the great invaded bohemia seventeen fifty seven on converging lines he had not in view to combine an attack in front with one on the strategic rear at all events this was by no means his principal object as we shall more fully explain elsewhere but in any case it is evident that there never could have been any question of a concentration of forces in silesia or saxony before the invasion as he would thereby have sacrificed all the advantages of a surprise when the allies formed their plans for the second part of the campaign of eighteen thirteen looking to their great superiority in numbers they might very well at that time entertain the idea of attacking bonaparte's right on the elbe with their main force and of thus shifting the theatre of war from the oder to the elbe their ill success at dresden is to be ascribed not to this general plan but to their faulty dispositions both strategic and tactical they could have concentrated two hundred twenty thousand men at dresden against bonaparte's one hundred thirty thousand a proportion of numbers eminently favourable open bracket at leipzig at least the proportion was two hundred eighty five to one hundred and fifty seven close bracket it is true that bonaparte had distributed his forces too evenly for the particular system of defence upon one line open bracket in silesia seventy thousand against ninety thousand in the mark brandenburg seventy thousand against one hundred and ten thousand close bracket but at all events it would have been difficult for him without completely abandoning silesia to assemble on the elbe a force which could have contended with the principal army of the allies in a decisive battle the allies could also have easily called up the army of reed to the main and employed it to try and cut bonaparte off from the road to mayence lastly in eighteen twelve the russians might have directed their army of moldova upon volhynia and lithuania in order to move it afterwards against the rear of the principal french army because it was quite certain that moscow must be the extreme point of the french line of operations for any part of russia beyond moscow there was nothing to fear in that campaign therefore the russian main army had no cause to consider itself too weak this scheme formed part of the disposition of the forces laid down in the first offensive plan proposed by general full according to which the army of barclay was to occupy the camp at drissa whilst that under bragathion was to press forward against the rear of the main french army but what a difference of circumstances in the two cases in the first of them the french were three times as strong as the russians in the second the russians were decidedly superior in the first bonaparte's great army had in it an impulsive force which carried it to moscow eighty miles beyond the drissa in the second it is unfit to make a day's march beyond moscow in the first the line of retreat on the neman did not exceed thirty miles in the second it was a hundred and twelve the same action against the enemy's retreat therefore which was so successful in the second case would in the first have been the wildest folly as the action against the enemy's line of retreat if it is more than a demonstration becomes a formal attack from the rear there remains therefore still a good deal to be said on the subject but it will come in more appropriately in the book upon the attack we shall therefore break off here and content ourselves with having given the conditions under which this kind of reaction may take place very commonly the design of causing the enemy to retreat by menacing his line of retreat is understood to imply rather a mere demonstration than the actual execution of a threat if it was necessary that every efficacious demonstration should be founded on the actual practicability of real action which seems a matter of course at first sight then it would accord with the same in all respects but this is not the case on the contrary in the chapter on demonstrations we shall see that they are connected with conditions somewhat different at all events in some respects we therefore refer our readers 
to that chapter. End of chapter 24 Recording by Timothy Ferguson, Gold Coast, Australia